Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to the Retrotube Christmas Special, and what could be more Christmassy than an atheist and a Jehovah's Witness chatting about some sort of pagan magical shenanigans? In a slight deadline-related tweet to the format, it's my turn again to choose the show, but don't worry, Heather gets two goes next time out. So don your deer antlers, crack out your punch and duty set, and sit down with your jars of peel, tapioca and sago. Yes, it's beloved mid-80s children's drama, The Box of Delights. Box of Delights is one of eight adaptations of the classic 1934 John Macefield novel. John Macefield, we got the, the best, best cars, cars here. <laughs> Joke for the Who fans there. <laughs> this one a six-part serialisation for BBC television, broadcast between November the 21st and Christmas Eve 1984, during which period I would have been dreaming about Star Wars figures and Beatles records. You still do. At the time, with its state-of-the-art special effects, Box of Delights was the most expensive children's drama ever made by the BBC. But Heather, did this impress you much or just bamboozle your noggin? My poor, poor brain. My poor, <laughs> poor brain. It's very odd, isn't it? It's very... I mean, I mean the, the show, not your brain. The, I mean both. But let's not beat around the old bush here. I've never, I've never actually heard of Box of Delights until last year. If you remember, I mean, I was going through several Dante's Inferno levels of hell uh, this mm. time last year, uh, not least of which uh, was our decision to record the Star Wars Christmas special, <laughs> which didn't happen in the end. That's our it, aborted episode. It was way too much for the likes of me. But we did get quite a few, um, a few requests to record Box of Delights and that was the first time I'd ever heard of it and people seemed to to then start talking about it all over this Christmas and then in the lead up to to, to Christmas again and all I could think is this must be some sort of Christmas related porno movie. Oh you. <laughs> it's called Box of Delights Adam. I mean <laughs> yeah, no. Every single time I giggle, the the amount of the amount of snars I have got in all of oh my dear. notes. I just think of a delightful wooden box that's all magical in that. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I know, I know, I know. And <laughs> I, I, I try, I try to be good, but I. Oh, you. 
if there is an if there is a real live naughty list, I think I'm always on it, and it's not my fault. <laughs> I think you are. <laughs> it doesn't need checking twice. It doesn't. It doesn't. I'm afraid. Um, so yeah, I did. I knew absolutely nothing about it, and then I started watching it, and now I have seen half of the series, and I feel I know less about it now than when I started. That is quite magical. Yes, we watched the first three episodes for two reasons. One was that we sort of wanted to leave some surprises for people who hadn't seen it and wanted to watch it. But also, it's so dense and there's so much going on here that we didn't want to lumber the listeners with yet another multi-part episode. (laughs) Although that still remains to be seen. We'll see what it's like when it comes time to edit it. Um, Crikey, yeah, that's true. I mean... I mean, but there's a lot. Could talk about Patrick Troughton all day. I think that's taken us red. <laughs> but yeah, I, it's not that I didn't enjoy it because I did. Um, it was in fact delightful. So yeah, no, I re- I really really enjoyed it. I just was baffled, just baffled. <laughs> I was baffled, and I've seen it before. Blimey. It's quite kaleidoscopic. That's kind of a disservice to kaleidoscopes. I think they just go around making, <laughs> you know, just making pretty patterns and, and leaving everybody's brains to themselves. This, this just, this, this was, this was... <sighs> I think one of the reasons it's a bit confusing is because the book is a sequel to a previous book, but the TV series isn't. Oh, that is confusing. That is confusing. So the book, the book was from nineteen thirty-four. No, nineteen thirty-five. Good year. I wrote, I wrote it down wrongly originally. The book's from nineteen thirty-five. It's a sequel to a nineteen twenty-seven book called *The Midnight Folk*. This isn't Kay Harker's first rodeo. No, kid. And there's a few instances where knowing it's a sequel makes sense. So uh, just to give you an idea of how surreal it is, there's a bit where he, uh, in the second or third episode, where he becomes tiny, goes through a hole in his. Floor mm. uh, and meets a, an ice skating mouse. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't say, OMG, it's an ice skating mouse. He says, Oh, hello, mouse. Maybe you can direct me to the pub. And the mouse says, Oh, hi, Kay. Yeah. So Kay has been doing this stuff before and he knows some of these characters already, which isn't set up in this TV adaptation. No, it really isn't. But the thing is, it's so bonkers, I'm not even sure that would help. No, it sort of doesn't matter, does it? Because it is just quite out there. It's very, very surreal. It is very surreal. This was originally adapted three times in the 40s and 50s for the radio uh, as part of BBC Children's Hour, often with similar casts. So in all three versions, the mouse was played by Charles Hawtrey. Oh. It should be quite... I can see him playing a mouse. Yeah, I can. Uh, and always the same music. So th- what's interesting about this is that the the very distinctive music, which is... Obviously, it's the first Noel, but it's via the Carol Symphony by a South African composer called Christian Victor Noel Hope Haley Hutchinson, which is a fantastic name. It's a very easy name to remember. <laughs> so obviously, it's got the first Noel melody, but that very familiar is from the Carol Symphony. And then it's got the Roger Lim synthesizer music over the top, so it has that sinister, discordant off-key synthesizer music over the opening titles, which makes it even more evocative than it already was. So you thrust right into the mid-80s with that. Although you can tell it is based sort of turn of the century, it does feel very 80s. A bit tripodsy in feel. <laughs> it's that sort of, yeah. It's, I think, a year before the tripods, I think. 
Tripods was 85. It's been a long time since we did that one. No. So I think this is the years. But it has that mid-80s video, whereas two or three years before, they'd be shooting on 60mm film outside and then video in the sets. Yeah. This one, they're filming the whole thing on video, so it really has that slightly too bright, slightly too plasticky looking outside broadcast mid-80s video, which I think actually suits this all right. Yeah, I agree. It's very atmospheric. On tripods, it didn't quite work for me. It was a bit drab and a bit colourless. Yeah. I think probably because Box of Delights is obviously set at Christmas time and there is snow, so there's not as much colour that you need to play around with. Well, it's quite a good one. Yeah, and I think it illuminates the existing colour better. Yeah, but with, with tripods, it was like beautiful, picturesque, quintessential English village green type setting in the beginning. Um you need the greens to be greener and the sky to be bluer for that and that's not what came across. It probably didn't help that we watched the tripods on YouTube and Box of Delights on BritBox so there's there's always going to be like a quality shift there as well so probably if the day that tripods arrives on BritBox and I have no doubt that one day it will. Oh can you imagine that blessed day? <laughs> then it, it will probably have to reevaluate exactly how it looks because it, it probably wants it's not from a VHS transfer onto YouTube and actually is from the original tapes then it'll probably look a lot better anyway it feels like it's something that should be a little bit older like it's from 1984 but it feels like it should be 1980 or 1981 I'm not sure why it does come up a lot on Twitter and it's one of these things that a lot of people will watch every year the lead up yes a lead up to christmas their own little routine that they do their christmasy thing mm. to get them in the mood and that those opening titles are intensely christmasy my actual first note is these titles have got adam s leslie's name all over them this couldn't be further <laughs> up his, his street if it actually was filmed in oxford <laughs> yes it's got the swirling snow and then it all has these... and the and the the punch and judy and the box and the all the pictures yeah, going the faces in and out of, merging into each other yeah yeah oh you love stars, all that snow. that's you that's punch, you all over that is glowing eyes Ooh. it zooms in onto patrick troughton's hairy eyebrows i mean who doesn't love them <laughs> but that with the music it's very strange and evocative and Christmassy and very cosy because it's one of those things that we all watched as a family so I think my mum liked it I don't I know my mum definitely liked the theme tune a lot I remember her remarking on it but I think we all sat down and watched it I think she she watched it with us so it's not just the kids watching things and the parents doing other stuff. I think my mum enjoyed it as well. My mum often enjoyed these children's BBC adaptations because my mum quite likes those twee, old-fashioned books starring posh children. Quite partial to those myself, I won't lie. Yeah, uh, obviously I have absolutely no memory of this. I don't know if it's ever been repeated. I, in 1984, I was one and a half. Oh, well. So I won't have remembered it. Obviously, we would not have watched it because it's Christmassy. It has absolutely no evocative atmosphere for me yeah no nostalgia no, for you no 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 i don't I'm not even sure if we we would have even heard of it to to be fair I me mean, because because obviously this was this was like the 80s probably peak time for going through the radio times and circling what you wanted to watch over christmas absolutely and if they're showing like a like a Star Wars or an Indiana Jones, that'd be really exciting because there was no, particularly, again, I always mentioned how late we had a VHS player. It was Christmas 1990 we got a VHS player. So before that, the only opportunity to watch these big, exciting blockbusters was on the telly. And 
they generally mostly came around at Christmas. So yeah, it's like uh, looking yeah. through it, feverishly looking through for the films section yeah. and then scanning down All the film that. section. They're showing Temple of Doom, which was uh, Christmas 1987. For us, it was always musicals. They were. They were the things that we'd all kind of gather around. So like all the MGM, like Meet Me in St. Louis, that's like, that's my sister's favourite film. Oh, really? Possibly ever. Um, yeah, the, the Sound of Music, Singing in the Rain, Mary Poppins, all of those that, are, you know, you know that they are always going to be shown at Christmas. And they're just nice. There's not a lot of peril involved. It's just nice and quiet. Well, my first note, because we watched it on BritBox... We did. As soon as I pressed play, a little thing saying up said, skip intro. What? And my thought was, how dare you? How dare you? Skip intro. Skipping the intro of Box of Delights. Get out. <laughs> how dare. How damn dare you? I'm doing you? the Cary Grant get out. I could see that in my mind's eye <laughs> when you said it. That was the only thing I thought. Or the threatening Harrison Ford finger. No, you're definitely more more Cary Grant. I am rather, aren't I? You are. <laughs> I'm a bit more Faye than Harrison Ford. Yes, we watched the first three episodes. They all have really nice episode titles. Episode one is called When the Wolves Were Running. My favourite ever newspaper headline, it was from the sports section, and it said, Wolves Hold Arsenal. And I thought, that's not going to end well for anyone. <laughs> No, it wouldn't. We're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs> and this opens, as many of these children's adaptations do, with a character arriving at a platform on a steam train. And you know what my first thought was, and I hope it was the same as yours. Hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? <laughs> I fought the war for your sort. Bet you sorry you won. Uh, oh no, it, it doesn't quite opening with him arriving at the platform. It, it starts with him getting on the train, rather. And it's very similar to Children of Green No and The Moon Stallion and lots of these others. It's I think it's probably just a trope of that sort of Victorian Edwardian pre-war children's novel that it's steam trains. In fact, beyond in fact, the 50s as well, because um, the Narnia books involve evacuees on trains as well. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of it, especially for, you know, posh middle-class kids, it's coming home from boarding school for the holidays, isn't it? So obviously train train stations would be involved. In fact, I think Children of Green know. We might have to do Children of Green know next year. Okay. But I think the, the main character in that, they're both kids coming home from boarding school on a train and being picked up by the driver... It's very Enid Blyton. This is how all uh, all books of the famous five and Secret Seven, the Five Five Daughters and Dog, they all start with everybody coming home on the train from boarding school and all meeting up and saying, "Oh, thank goodness, thank goodness, we're all back home." Oh God, I hate boarding school. It's the worst place ever. I can't stand it. Oh my God, why don't my parents love me? Thank goodness I'm home with my emotionally distant parents. <laughs> so emotionally distant that they actually don't feature. Yes, or some random woman who we don't... It's his governess. I don't really know what that means, is it? I guess it's his t- teacher or is it just the woman who... No, it's, it's his guardian, it's his isn't guardian, it? his guardian, yeah. So, so is he an orphan, maybe? I'm not sure. He, he must be. He must be a cousin or an auntie or a something. Kay is at the train station and he loses his ticket and then all of a sudden... and this, I think this is probably what everybody wants to happen to them when they are having a bit of a panic at a train station, is 
to turn around and be confronted with Patrick Troughton and his pet dog. A very hairy Patrick Troughton. They hear a wheezing, groaning sound and they turn around and there's a very hairy Patrick Troughton and his very hairy pet dog. He's very hairy. He looks adorable. He just looks <laughs> so cuddly. I would, I would feel so safe instantly. I'd be like, do you know what? I'm not worried about anything now because here's Patrick Troughton. He's probably going to give me a little cuddle and send me on my way and I'll feel fine for the rest of the adventure. And that isn't quite what happened, but Barney Dog, Patrick Troughton's best mate, instantly becomes friends with Kay. I wonder if Barney Dog is actually Jamie, but he's transmuted into a dog. Yeah, probably. I think so. Let's just say that that is the case. I mean, he does wear a pretty exquisite ruff later on, which I thought was a great pun, a great visual pun. Um, He doesn't wear a... Oh, yes, I hadn't thought of that. That's very good. (laughs) I can't believe you didn't think of that. You're the king of puns. (laughs) Uh, yeah so anyway the doctor and Jamie meet Kay (laughs) (laughs) oh I'm so confused I I know that um, some Doctor Who fans being Doctor Who fans because Doctor Who fans will Doctor Who fan they they often do they like to headcanon the fact that this is this is actually a Doctor Who story and he is the Doctor I I can see why they would headcanon that I didn't see a great deal to make me think otherwise really I can totally see well that. he is playing like this very scruffy character who has a magical box with hidden depths <laughs> and he's hundreds of years old and he travels through time so there is that yeah obviously there's that. But at the same time, I think sort of as a mark of how good an actor Patrick Troughton is, he's playing a completely different character. I mean, I didn't watch this at any point thinking, oh, it's Doctor Who. No, no. Like once you register the fact it's Patrick Troughton, then he's just, he's that character and he's not like, I think had it been Tom Baker, for example, Tom Baker is always Tom Baker. He's aspects of Tom Baker. So you think, oh, it's Doctor Who. (laughs) There's the Doctor in this. Hey, Doctor, where's your scarf? Oh, mate, where's your scarf? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, I love the way that your instant reaction to everything is to turn into Cockney Yobbo (laughs) I am secretly deep down a Cockney Yobbo (laughs) stroke builder (laughs) oh doctor (laughs) I wish you scarf doctor (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yes but no, he's he's playing an entirely different character, isn't he? he there's nothing second doctorly about him at all. No, no, there's there's not, there's not. It's still very deliberate casting by the director. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I think you can't cast Patrick Troughton in something like that without knowing that you're casting the second doctor, even if he's not playing the second doctor. And the director, uh, whose name was I can't remember. I I ought to name check the director. He was a staff director, so he wasn't. You know, chosen specifically because he was a maverick who was really good at children's fantasy or anything like that. So the director was Rennie Rye, which is an That's interesting name. name. And he said in an interview that Patrick Troughton was his favourite Doctor. Aww. So he would have been, so he was very aware of the fact that he was casting someone who who wanted to have that Doctor Who like presence. Yeah, I think to both their credits, I think to his credit and Patrick Troughton's credit, that, that he's it's not the second Doctor and it's not Doctor Who. No, it's true. Ah, oh, young man. I see my Barney dog has made friends with you at first sight. That's the time that likings are made. And you're looking for your ticket. Which, lo, is on the platform, dropped at your feet. But it can't be. I was just 
So it is. Thank you, sir. You must have slipped it out as you're unpaged. Yes. As I what? Well... Uh, can I give you a hand? Oh, if you would be so kind, uh, hold me steady as I swing her up. Then I can get her to my back <coughs> where she rides a triumph. Only I do date from pagan times, and age makes joints to creak. Oh, doesn't it? I should think it does. Then, there we are. Patrick Troughton has been on screen for 10 seconds and has already owned the entire show. <laughs> yes, he does that, doesn't he? Just he just does that. He just, co- he just comes in and it's like, okay, <laughs> this was an ensemble piece, but now it's mine. And it's not even like he does it purposely in a sort of a, well, listen up, kids, it's me. It, he just, it's just, that's that's how he is. It's just what's going on. It's a bit like Alec Guinness in Star Wars. This very very good senior actor who comes in and entirely steals the show you just he doesn't do very much he doesn't need to but he's so subtle in what he's doing that you just can't take your eyes off him and he owns the entire thing when he's on screen yes you only need a concentrated amount of patrick troughton for it to be a patrick troughton show then Kay leaves patrick troughton at the train station and then gets onto the train and he's sat there minding his own business. And then these two really creepy men come in. There's a lot of creepy men involved in this. Two really creepy vicars. The stranger danger flags are waving here, aren't they? So much. All the so alarms much. are going off. Hello, little boy. Let's show you a card trick. Like, it is so creepy. It was really uncomfortable, that entire scene. <laughs> Going home for the holidays. <laughs> what? Yes, sir. Very seasonable weather, too. Snow. I like snow. Over Christmas, I wonder if you play games and uh, do card tricks. I don't know any card tricks. Not knowing? Allow me to teach you one. Oh, I don't think I'll be very good at it. I see that you'll be very clever at it. Don't you agree, Tristan? He has the face of one certain to be very clever at card tricks. Hmm, the very face. It's just the facial angle and the Borromean index. Let nothing tempt you into playing cards with strangers on a train. That's what my guardian says. Hmm. Nevertheless, there's no harm in showing him one of the tricks card sharpeners use to deceive the unwary. Ha <laughs> What? No moment was more uncomfortable than the moment that <clears throat> the skinny guy took his scarf off and revealed that he was a vicar and then, moments later, turned into a fox for a second. What's that all about? I've seen three episodes and I still don't know what the fox thing was all about. What does no, the he's, fox No, he's say? Fox-faced Charlie. Uh, well, yes, quite. So I guess he's literally a fox. The thing about this is that reality is fluid throughout, so things aren't fixed and situations aren't fixed. Fox-faced Charlie drives a car, but it's also an aeroplane. It often doesn't make any noise as well. They know Kay's name and they know where he lives. Kay, at this point, is probably terrified for his life. But he doesn't seem to be. He doesn't seem to be. He seems to be just very polite. I think the thing about Kay is that he's a posh boy from a boarding school. So any sense of fear is being totally overridden overridden by his sense of entitlement. No. Probably. Daddy owns this railway. But he doesn't have a daddy because he's clearly an orphan because he lives with his guardian. I'm going to inherit this railway when I'm 21. I mean, it was it was a creepy scene at the time, but I think 
it's just got creepier over time. And it's definitely something that wouldn't be played like that now. No. Not because they're not baddies, because they clearly are baddies. It's not like it's innocently being creepy. It's deliberately being creepy, but it's just for a like a cosy Christmas children's drama full of magic and mystery. They do seem more like creepy, icky blokes than petty criminals, which is what they eventually end up being, is just petty criminals and they rip them off of some money. But it's such a sinister scene. It really is. It really is. It was not pleasant. And I started watching it a few days ago and this scene made me just switch it off and because I just couldn't, because it was just too... Crikey. It was too much for me. It was... Nah. I pushed through and uh, fortunately <laughs> Kay gets picked up by a woman wearing a lot of fur. She seems very nice, apart from all the dead animals that she was wearing. I was going to say about the train ride that what I like about it is it's an actual train ride through actual countryside, so it's not an effect. There's a lot of effect work in this. There's lots of CSO and overlay and Quantel paint box and all that sort of thing, but mm. this is an actual view out of the window, and that, I think, really helps. That was nice. It adds a lot of weight to that sort of thing that I think it would be just so easy just to put, you know, hang some blue sugar paper outside the window. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, he meets uh, meets a woman who he's who is his guardian, and he sees Patrick Troughton at the railway station one more time, and he tells him, he says he says, "Kay Harker, the wolves are running." Yes. Perhaps you can stop their bite. Yes. What I like about it is that it's played absolutely straight. Mm. There's not a single smirk. There's nothing knowing about it, and I think it would be again. I don't want to rag on modern stuff because modern stuff is great. Well, yes. But I think. All modern dramas, or a lot of modern dramas, particularly children's dramas, would would have a bit of a wink to them, a bit of a twinkle. You know, they'd wink to the camera and go, you don't have to take this too seriously. But this is taking itself utterly seriously. Which is not to say it doesn't have humour, but it's all within the characters, within the situation. Yeah, and it, and it helps with, as you say, the sort of fluidity of reality. That may sound really clever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm say that again one day. Um... <laughs> But it does it does help to to bring that whole thing over because when Patrick Troughton says about the the running wolves, Kay looks over and he sees the two creepy vicars going over go like running up a hill in the in the snow and he he looks and he sees them and then he glances again and they've actually turned into wolves. Um, it's not like oh my god they've turned into wolves. It's just like yep uh huh mm-hmm, that's what's happened. This is a thing. Everybody seems to know where Kay lives. Like, yeah, he's sort of famous. Everyone knows Kay. Everyone knows Kay. Everybody's Kay. For pal. quite an unremarkable boy. It, yeah. I don't know if it's just the performance, but he he slightly falls into main character trope where he's usually that. the least interesting person on screen. I was saying this when I was talking to um, Crow Violet about escaping tonight that I don't want uh, to just lay into child actors because that's not really fair because <laughs> they're children but at the same time i think he does a fairly he does a decent enough job playing the character but he's he's not a fascinating character he's very much just there so that we know what's going on like he is he is the audience view i think and comparing it to children of green no which came two or three years it came two years later and it was quite a similar sort of thing. A very different story, but it had quite a similar setup. And it was the same thing of a young boy coming home from boarding school. Or go, I think he was going to stay with his grandma, his great-grandma. Uh, another child with a strange name. This one's called Tolly, played by Alec Christie. And he's much more of a distinctive child and much more an interesting character. He's not just 
a cipher. It does kind of work having a cipher, but I prefer having an interesting main character. That There's some reason why everybody knows who he is. All the adults say, say Ah, Master K! Ah, come in, Master K! He is. Uh, he's got. A, he's got a line in 1930s slang. Yes. So he he, he uh, wants to stop the car. He's driving home with the driver and his guardian, whose name I forgot to write down. Oh, Carolina Louisa, I think. Carolina, no, Carol. Yeah, Carolina Louisa, and he wants to stop and buy some muffins. But he says, "You'll have to lend me some tin. I haven't a single tosser to my kick." <laughs> and she's. She's outraged that he's using such vulgar slang. <laughs> Whereas, of course, I heard the word tosser and just lolled. My note on that was cabbage crates coming over the briny. Check you out. They get home and there's a there's a vile child. That They have a family of children stay with them. There's like three or four. And one of the girls, Mariah, is a sociopath. She's awful. She's just the most dreadful little girl. I had the exact opposite view. She's the coolest one in it. Like oh, she's God. she should be the main character. She's the only interesting one. So they're all they're all a bunch of posh goody goodies with no personality between them. And I think Mariah's possibly the youngest. Right. I don't know who these other kids are. Are they friends of the family or are they cousins or something? They've they've come to stay over Christmas the, as well. They're just the Joneses. This... They've just turned up. Yeah, in this big mansion that they're staying in. Th- I don't even know how many. There's three or four of these other kids. And they're all very posh and polite. And terrible goody-goodies, apart from Mariah, who has a gun and is really bullshit and boisterous. I thought, she's the only cool one there. Oh, she just hates everyone. She's awful. Oh, God, I hate that <laughs> child. Oh. <laughs> no, I like that one. Stick them up. Mariah? Really? Mariah, don't point guns at people. Hello, Kay. Hello. Oh, Pooh, it's only a toy. Kay, I've got a real gun at home. I pop balloons and tin cans with it. It's an air gun and it's not really yours. Kay, you remember my sensible sisters, Susan and Jemima? Yes, of course. Hello. Hello. Kay, just what are we going to do this Christmas? If we're snowed in, it could get awfully boring. What Jemima means is what Christmas treats you might have, and it's not very polite of her to ask. Golly, I am stupid. I should have asked that old Punch and Judy man whether he would come and give us a show. Yeah. My idea of a Christmas tree is if a gang of robbers burgled the neighbourhood and we battled it out with revolvers. Bang, bang, bang! I hope we may be spared that. Christmas ought to be brought up to date with gangsters and automatic pistols and aeroplanes. A note I originally wrote was all children's dramas featured posh kids till about 1989. But then I kind of thought that's not really fair because actually a lot of the original children's dramas... And the contemporary children's dramas were usually about working class kids. And it's actually the adaptations, particularly of adaptations of classic novels, because classic novels tended to be about posh kids. So therefore, the adaptations of classic novels tend to be about posh kids. So probably they did actually get the balance all right. There was the uh, one that had the theme tune that was Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. And that was about racial inequality and aggravation and that sort of thing. It was a it was called Running Scared. That's what it was called. It was called Running Scared. And it was about a white girl who was friends with an Asian girl. But it turned out, I think, that her brother was a bit of a racist thug. Like the white girl's brother, elder brother, was a bit of a racist thug. And there's one called Match Point, which was about a kid who wanted to be a tennis player. 
uh, and it had Stephen Yardley on it saying the word bleeding on children's television. It was, I was scandalised. Bleeding, oh my God. You want to sort your bleeding life out, something like that anyway. The books that were adapted for children's BBC tended to be like E. Nesbitt books about really posh Edwardian children going on spiffing adventures and having a wonderful time and corking. A man in a white cloak turns into a deer. That happens next. If you see someone, tell them someone is safe. Master Harker? Hey, Harker. They tell me the wolves are running. If you see someone, say someone is safe. Look out for fun, Master Harker. Big O'Rama. It's like, it's creepy, but it's also so vague. Like... Who is someone? And who is someone? And who's Kay? Why is he, like... Why are we so bothered about him? Yeah, everyone's really interested in Kay and getting Kay to do stuff and, like, be a messenger and help out with these adventures. Like, who is he? Like I say, because this is a... Well, the is book he? was a sequel to another book. Then it makes more sense. But as a standalone TV drama, I think we're supposed... The the child watching is supposed to put themselves into, I think, like you say, into Kay's shoes. I think so. As if, like, suddenly all these magical people are interested in me helping them and having a sword and going on these adventures. And you look after this magical box, make sure the bad guys don't... Yes. It doesn't fall into their hands. And then all of a sudden, the random old lady appears and says, drop of dew. I'm like, well, okay, don't mind if I do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Kay Harker doesn't care two jots. Like, see, when he sees the man in the white cape turn into a de- an animated deer, he's like, uh. he's like the um the gif of Alan Partridge shrugging. He's like, uh. hmm. oh well, there's a man turning into a deer. It is just very much like loads of inexplicable stuff happens around him, and he's just like, okay, so this is what we're doing now. And after all of this, he asks Patrick Troughton, "Are you magic?" Like, what the hell else is he? I mean, of course he's magic. What do you think, Sonny? Plot twist. The box actually isn't the TARDIS. It's the maths in a box box. It's got specific powers that we come to at some point. Um, I don't know if it's even in this episode. No, it's it's second or third episode we come to its specific things that it does, as well as being a box of delights. It also has... It's like a remote control, but for yourself. Cole Hauling's... Patrick Troughton's character Kay Harker and Cole Hawlings that's it's quite confusing for my poor brain when I'm writing characters in something I always give them different initials so I can keep track of them Cole Hawling Cole Hawlings and Kay Harker very tricky for me well he's a Punch and Judy man in this he is a Punch and Judy man which I think at the time was supposed to be like very charming and nice but is there anything more sinister than There's Punch nothing, and Judy nothing more sinister you can keep no. your clowns I've never found clowns particularly scary. Punch and Judy, though. Oh, I know. I mean... Mr Partridge. Oh. He's invited up to the big house where Kay Harker lives because they always live in big mansions, these children. They always do. And there's lots of other children there, including these people who may or may not be related to him. And so Cole Hawlings puts on a Punch and Judy show, which the kids are delighted by, and it's all very magical. And then there's a moment, there's a moment I really liked, I thought it was very effective, when the dog starts barking and Patrick Troughton says, there's somebody out there and Kay looks really worried. And then they pull back the curtains and it's carol singers, which is, on the surface, it's quite an obvious rug pull or wrong footing. But there's just something about the juxtaposition between 
how sinister you think that's going to be. The whole thing with the wolves being built up and you see all the wool, the images of wolves and these creepy characters that are following them and things like that. And then there's somebody outside the house and the dog's barking and pull back the curtains and suddenly it's carol singers. And suddenly at that moment their carol is audible and it's strange. It's not a mundane rug pull. It's a very strange and magical rug pull. You're expecting something magical. And because the thing that you're expecting and you don't know what it is that you're expecting and it turns out to be something very traditionally Christmassy and mundane, that in itself comes across in a in a mystical kind of way even even though there's, there's nothing really to it because it is genuinely just the village it's it's an odd moment there's someone out there well we'll soon see This is a thing that wouldn't happen these days. Carolina Louisa, is that her name? His guardian's brother is ill, so she has to go to London. Uh, she has to leave the children on their own. Actually, it turns they're not, they're not on their own. There's a housekeeper, but ostensibly on their own. Uh, and she says, oh, well, it's the season of goodwill and all that. Nothing can go wrong. Yeah, that's what I, It's Christmas. What can go wrong? Ha, 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 Freddy foreshadowing. You don't say that out loud. <laughs> No, this, this exact same thing happened in the episode of Thunderbirds that we watched. Oh, it did, didn't it? Yeah, that was when Jeff was ago. like, oh, they're only going through a tunnel. What, what's the worst that can happen? Oh. And just before that happens, Patrick Troughton just uh, leaves through a painting. Oh, he does, doesn't he? That's right. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, a donkey comes. There's a painting on the wall of a mountain trail. Yeah, he makes it come to life and a donkey appears out of nowhere. He He hops on it. And then travels off into the painting. Hmm. He becomes an animated um, Patrick Troughton, which he would do again many decades later. Yes. With the missing episodes of Doctor Who. (laughs) I have to admit that my favourite out of all the children was Kay's pal, Peter. Okay. He just didn't care about anything. He firmly didn't. Like, he may have cared, but... He was just way more interested in, like, you know, not getting involved. There's something very Tim Brooke Taylor about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, cowardice is the higher form of intelligence. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, he was was quite sarcastic. I I don't mind a sarcastic child. I just don't like a sociopathic (laughs) child. Somehow, I can't remember how he gets there because this show is so dense and so just full of random events that they see the rat. They come across the human kind of rat thing, which a is human rat. horrifying. It is not nice. It's not nice. There's some really kind of dark stuff It's quite stuff horrific, in yeah. Flipping at Tucker, Abner Brown is properly sinister. He is. I mean, he's very upset that he's been stopped from getting his hands on Patrick Troughton's box of delights. You'll have to tell me later why that's rude. <laughs> you know. Yeah, the two, the what were they called? Chubby Joe and Foxface Charlie, the two creepy vicars from the train. They're a bit like a pair of Bertie Woosters. They're very posh and a bit dopey and ineffectual. Other than being creepy, they're quite dopey. They are like P.G. Woodhouse characters. That is such a disservice to Bertie Wooster. 
I am sorry. Bertie Wooster's weird icky pals. Then he has some. He's more of a. They're more of a tuppy glossop. <laughs> Just a pair of tuppy glossops. Two tuppy glossops. That's more than enough for anyone. Tuppy glossop and Bingo Little are the <laughs> <laughs> are the henchmen. You know your Woodhouse. I do. Lol. Um... <laughs> I don't even know why. <laughs> Why? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna start crying soon because I don't understand any of the references. I don't understand why it's rude. <laughs> Just assume that it's all rude. Okay, I will do. <laughs> I don't even know what we're talking about. Abner Brown, the baddie, he's played by Robert Stevens, who's quite—he's another legendary actor. So they've got a couple of big names in this. If Patrick Troughton is Sir Alec Guinness, then Robert Stevens is Peter Cushing. Ah. I love Peter Cushing. He's very much the sweetest. Did you know, and I'm sure you do know, because this is one of my favourite stories in the whole wide world, but Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, obviously well-known best friends, they were once thrown out of a cinema for laughing too hard at a Sylvester and Tweety Pie cartoon. <laughs> How can you get thrown out for laughing too much at the comedy? They were. They were. They were, they were actually thrown out. They were having too much fun. And... <laughs> I mean, as a person with, to not put too, too fine a point on it, a really irritating laugh. Um, I wouldn't say that. I can understand. I can understand how that would happen. I just love the idea that Van Helsing and Dracula got kicked out of a cinema <laughs> for laughing too hard at Sylvester and Tweety Fantastic. John Macefield at John Macefield is local to me there. and... Is he it? wrote about the shop where I work. In fact, our no bags, way. we have tote bags and it has a John Maysfield quote on the back. Really? About about our shop. Really? What does it say? What does it say? I can't remember. It's a whole long quote. It's like a long passage. It's a whole paragraph. I mean, obviously he was talking about you specifically. This episode ends with wolves, a flying horse, a burning fortress. Um, Yeah, and medieval villages. Kay says he's near King Arthur's camp, asks his friend Peter to go with him. Peter can't be bothered because it's midnight and it's snowing, and frankly, I don't blame him. Can't be bothered, mate. Kay goes anyway, uh, finds a conveniently located pony, goes off into the night, he's pursued by wolves. Then he arrives at the camp and it's on fire. Pony, pony, how do we get in? The pony flies in. I'm going to fly in, mate. Because, of course, (laughs) that's what the pony says. And he lands in a crowd of medieval villagers, and then the credits go up, and I am not okay. I am not okay at this point. (laughs) And we're only at the end of episode one. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of stuff going on here. When you texted me the other day and you said, maybe we won't watch all six episodes because it's a little bit dense. You weren't kidding, were you? <laughs> you, you <laughs> it certainly did, wasn't. You, you did not exaggerate in any way, shape or form. This, 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 like, this, is, this is the televisual equivalent of Christmas pudding. It's yeah. so dense. <laughs> it really is. Just a giddying collection of raisins and glassy cherries and... A lot of brandy. So much brandy. Lots of brandy and just random things you weren't even expecting to be in there. And a few sixpences. But weird magical sixpences from a different dimension. On the occasion of Roman coin. Yeah. It's not a show that goes for slow burn or subtlety, really, is it? It doesn't build up to the weirdness. It's pretty much weird from the off. Yes. It does get weirder, but it it doesn't start out particularly normal. But when you've already got like a, a kid on a flying horse and a 
besieged ancient fortress by the end of episode one, 25 minutes in. That's going at a fair old gallop. It is. It is. I'm just, I'm, I'm, my poor head. So episode two, I like the episode titles. They're quite evocative. Where shall the knighted snowman go? But it's knighted without a K. It's knighted as in snowman at night. Where shall the knighted snowman go? Oh. We found out during this episode neither what that means or where he does end up going. I don't know. What does that mean? There is a snowman. I don't know if it's a knighted snowman or not. Didn't ask. No. <clears throat> Although my note regarding the snowman was Mariah is making a snowman, probably a killer snowman with a bazooka, knowing her. <laughs> I think my note about the snowman was that their housekeeper is the biggest killjoy ever committed oh to film. Oh my god, she is. Oh my goodness, you're cold and you're wet. It's freaking winter and it's snowing. Yes. We're building a snowman. What do you expect children to do? That's that whole thing these days of like, oh, kids, you know, they wrap them in cotton wool, the nanny state. Nanny state. She has a right go at them, go at them for just being outside making a snowman. They're literally not doing anything wrong for once. They're just doing exactly the thing that children do and are supposed to do. Oh dear. Trouble. Now, children, you're all getting wet through. It's all right, Ellen. No, Master Kate is not all right. With Miss Caroline Louisa away, it's my responsibility. Have you had any message? Is she coming home? No. Telephone's not working. Are they doing their best? They always say they're doing their best. (laughs) Miss Mariah! Miss Susan, just look at you. Miss Jemima, you really are old enough to know better. Come on, inside. Come on, Peter. There's too much discipline here altogether. Anyway, this episode doesn't start with an actual snowman building. That comes a bit later. It starts with the... um... Medieval villagers fighting invading wolves. One thing I want to say about the special effects is that the special effects don't look great by today's standards. And people will often say they look brilliant at the time. Oh, you know, they don't look great now, but at the time they look so good. They didn't look good at the time. They looked exactly (laughs) like they look now at the time. I remember thinking, ooh. (laughs) I've seen this twice before, once at the time, and then a few years ago I watched the first two episodes again. But So I quite vividly remember the first time I watched it and... <laughs> yeah, that's that. That doesn't work at all because, of course, we we already had films like things like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, where there were amazing special effects. So it's not like we had nothing to compare it to. And obviously, obviously, they couldn't afford to get anywhere close to the Star Wars effects. So I'm not suggesting they should, but uh, but this idea that this stuff looked amazing at the time, it it didn't. It, it looked, didn't. <laughs> it looked exactly as bad as it looks now. But. Having said that... They were trying their best. I do think... They were trying their best, and I also think that it works better if you had more slick special effects. If it was remade today, with today's special effects and CGI, it would be rubbish. It would be incredibly glossy, yeah, I think... It would be so glossy... It would be so glossy... That, that all of the personality and the creepiness and the, to quote your favourite word, hauntological aspect of it would be gone completely. So it works. It works in this specific context, the the crappy the, the crappy effects. Because <laughs> I think so. I think I think the story is so weird that it doesn't really pull you out of it because the special effects are so weird as well. It's it's true. If, it's if true. If the story was more it had more of an internal logic. But it doesn't. Like 
like if it was, you know, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which has a lot of internal logic and is a fairly straightforward fantasy story. Yeah. You know, b- bad special effects and that will pull you out of it. But this this story is so trippy. <laughs> it's like, what the heck is going on now? So the bad effects work with the story in a way that I can't actually put into words, but you know what I mean? Mm. No, I know exactly what you mean. I think it's it's the Polar Express effect. I don't know if you ever seen the, the Robert Zemeckis animations of like 10 or 20 years ago where they went through that phase of of trying to make cg animated films look like real people photorealistic ones so now they tend to just to do they're just really spectacular cartoons essentially so you get things like inside out they look like cartoon characters but they went through that phase post um final fantasy where it's things like polar express and christmas carol where it's it's trying to get the characters to look like real people but they just don't and it is the uncanny valley thing of you can't quite put your finger on why they don't look like real people a lot of the time often you can it is in a soulless way so it isn't that slightly barking mad way of just really bad Quantel paint box effects it adds to the craziness of it all it is that just excessively glossy soulless way here's another thing you wouldn't get these days a boy gleefully killing wolves with a sword he looks so smug about it he was he so proud to, he's having the... check me out killing animals i am having a lovely time the scene is so it's just, this village is getting attacked by wolves and he's given a sword by some knight fellow in armor to help defend the village from these wolves. And he goes around killing wolves and he's like, check me out, kids. And he looks so happy. Look, he's he just does. beaming with utter happiness that he's slaying these wolves. Did you see that? I killed an actual animal. I don't know if you noticed the bit where a stagehand off screen throws an actual small dog at him. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I think I was, I was so busy being like, what the? That I didn't notice. There's a bit where, yeah, a wolf is supposed to have leapt at him, but it's just clearly someone's thrown a, a small dog at him and it kind of collides with him and falls to the floor and just looks a bit nonplussed and hum- humiliated. I sure would. And then in the close-up, he swings his sword and skewers this... And obviously not, <laughs> not really, but he's just gleefully massacring. And then Patrick Troughton comes along and says, oh, yeah, we had great times killing those wolves. Buy a television, get a hobby. Just to um, demonstrate how strange and surreal this is, that midway through this battle, Kay has transported the moon and Cole is now Gandalf the White on the moon. Yes, and he says, they want my box of delights that I showed you at the end. I'm going to have to put you on the naughty step. You'll get a a one-podcast suspension. Oh, that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's worth it. There's there's so much there's so much golden innuendo in this show. I love it. Um, and then he asks Kay to take the box and make sure that the baddies don't get it. But before before he actually hands the box over, he has some instructions to give him as to how the box actually works. There are three things that he needed to know: how to open the box. That's quite important. And then if you turn it, I am turning it to the right. And it is locking. It's a little control on it. It's got a little control. Yeah, turn it to the right and you go small. Turn it to the left and you go swift. Then cold appears and the wolves arrive and Kay turns the box to the left and he goes swift. He gets hoiked up into the air. (laughs) Cole hauling on the moon in his... So normally he's dressed as a hobo with a bit of string around his middle. But on the moon he's wearing these pristine white robes like he's Gandalf the White. Yeah, he's very much in the Gandalf mould 
Or should we say Gandalf is very much in the Cole Hauling mood because The Hobbit wasn't until 1937 and this is 1935. Oh, yeah. So this is pre-The Hobbit. Oh. And it's, it's also a thing in both the Middle-earth books and in the Narnia books is the characters killing wolves with swords. They've really got something against wolves, haven't they? They were cat people. And the Narnia books in particular, that's quite a, quite a similar thing of having children, posh children from Earth, going into this magical realm and having swords and then just slaying supposedly bad animals with them. Do you know, I really love the idea now that the Narnia Chronicles and the Lord of the Ring universe are all just really, really involved Box of Delights fanfic I think that should be a thing. I think that's basically what it is. Particularly Narnia. I think Narnia is very similar. The wardrobe is kind of a box of delights, isn't it? Like going through this thing. Yeah. Into the magical realm with kind of medieval accoutrements and evil wolves and all sorts. Yeah, I think so. And snow. I think you've hit upon it there. I think I have. Oh, we've made a discovery, lads. They sneak out of the house, Peter and Kay, and they pack some supplies. They go into the larder, very much like in that scene in the tripods. I was thinking that, yeah. I was thinking that. It's a very similar scene. Then they go out into the snow. And can I just say, the snow scenes look absolutely amazing. They do look beautiful. And it's proper snowfall. It's not like the the snow machines that have all that foamy stuff. No, no, no. It's proper... Proper, proper snow here, lads. You can see for miles. You, you, you yeah, are you Pete Townsend. You can see for miles. And, and miles and miles snow. and miles and miles. Oh, yeah. This is a very who sellout type episode this week, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> this week's podcast episode has been sponsored by the Who Sellout. John Mason, we've got the best cars here. Hold your group together with road, road to, to sound strings. Now, other than I think the camera didn't like... The cold, because there's some frightful ghosting on it. Did you notice the ghosting? I didn't notice the ghosting. Oh. Sorry. Yeah, it's a shame, because it looks amazing, but there's some huge ghosting going on on the image. But that doesn't really spoil how just stunningly amazing those snow scenes look. There's a really lovely golden light, and it's so Christmassy and evocative. And then they spot Cole wandering across the field, at which point he's immediately kidnapped by posh ruffians who say, Get him, chaps! They do. And Kay is such a Boy Scout, we're going to have to go to the police. They go to the local inspector. This is James Grout. Uh, He played Barleyman Butterbur in the BBC radio adaptation of Lord of the Rings. Very similar accent. He has that buttery burr to him when he talks. And he's he's playing an annoyingly jovial police inspector who doesn't take coal seriously at all. He doesn't. He says that somebody's been kidnapped. He just wants to talk about magic tricks and rabbits. I mean, to be fair, I feel that. I say Cole, I mean K. An aeroplane. You haven't been around lately to see my rabbits, Master Harker. I've been away at school, Inspector. Ah. An aeroplane. At Bottler's Down. Near King Arthur's camp. Have you seen the latest issue of The Magician, Master Harker? There's a very good conjuring trick. Hard-boiled eggs. The inspector and I are both interested in magic. No, I haven't. You take six hard-boiled eggs. When I say take, it wouldn't be for you to take them without your guardian's permission. Far be it from me as a man of the law to encourage... 
Ah. Uh, an aeroplane. You see, I should hate anything to happen to old Mr. Hawlings. Master Harker, that aeroplane. That aeroplane. That was those young officers from the aerodrome. Having a bit of a frolic. It didn't look like a frolic, and they weren't in uniform, and I'm sure it wasn't a government plane. Besides, such a lonely place, and at such a time in the morning. And what were you doing at that place and at such a time in the morning, eh? That's a really fun scene, though. I mean, he's he's annoying, but he's deliberately annoying. James Grout is just playing it with such gr- glee, this role he as this is. bucolic policeman. Uh, he's not bothered that Patrick Troughton's been all band mapped. He thinks that it's just a big prank, and that the law doesn't care. Um, I think this is the most realistic part of the entire show. <laughs> BBC is very good at evoking period, isn't it? It really is. Not so great at science fiction with just, oh, silver foil, that'll do. But, you know, ev- evoking a 1930s police station. Seamless. Absolutely. They're talking about Cole Hawlings and Peter says he's splendiferous. And do you know what? He certainly is. Isn't he? I can agree with that. On the phone is... Yeah, it's an imposter, Cole Hawlings. Yes. In what's played as a comic scene. Yeah, he keeps know. on going to, to give the phone to Kay and then takes it back and that was really nicely played. And then when the phone does get to Kay, it's all crackly, which obviously you would expect it to be. And it wouldn't be anything weird in the 80s for it to be a crackly weird reception. And it, it's supposedly Cole Hawlings on the other end of the line. We know it's not. We know it's just not. Just from context. Yeah. I mean, it's Patrick Troughton's voice. It is actually his voice on the other end of the line. It's it's someone impersonating. It's Abner Brown, it turns out, impersonating him. Yeah. But the fact that there's no recognition in his voice when he's talking to Kay. Yes. He's just very brusque with him and doesn't really go, oh, Kay, lovely to talk to you, mate. How's, how's things? How's it hanging, mate? What have you been up to? None of that stuff. He's just very off with him. And Kay and Peter just shrug and say, oh, well, I guess he's fine. Then he wasn't kidnapped by ruffians at all it was just a prank by some local air force boys like the policeman said condicott 7000 yes i see hold on hold on now that is what we call in the law a coincidence our officer in tachester is inquiring about your very punch and duty man mr cole what was it hawlins has he been reported missing? Not at all. He's at Tachester Police Station to show his licence. And our officer wants to know if he's a suitable person to perform before the bishop. Oh, yes. He's splendiferous. Hello. I have every reason to suppose, from information received, that the man Hawlins can be trusted not to shock the company. Is he there? Could I, please? Would you bring Mr Hawlins to the telephone, please? There's a young gentleman here. I would like a word with him. Hello, Mr. Hawlins. Are you any the worse for your little trip in the aeroplane? <laughs> he says none the worse, sir. Oh, Mr. Hawlins, who was it put you in the aeroplane? Ah, he says some young friends with more fun than sense. Oh, uh, Mr. Hawlins, what brought you out to Butler's Down in the snow? Ah. <laughs> He says it's the only flat bit where he could meet the aeroplane. Cottington 25, Hello? Now, give up the straight and go on with a belladonna. Hello? Hello, Mr Hawlings? Are you all right? 
Perfect to fight. Thank you, young master. You really are Mr. Hawlings? The one that found my ticket on the railway station and was scrubbled into the aeroplane? The very same, young master. Goodbye. 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 So, that is that. He says to them, over Christmas, you should come and see my rabbits, and I am going to use that line in the future. <laughs> when you're picking up young men to... <laughs> when yeah. you're out in the bar, yeah, you come over to Christmas, see my rabbits. Yeah, that's right, that's right, so, you know. We then have a, a cartoon sequence. Again, Stranger Danger, he looks into the... He, oh, yeah, that's right, he's under the table, and he opens the box of delight, and he's got the golden light in the in the Pulp Fiction style, the golden light coming out of the box, shining onto his face, and he's, he, is, he is looking delighted, I'll give him that. And he meets Hearn the Hunter in his woods. There's the woods inside the box of delight, and he meets Hearn, Hearn the Hunter, and Hearn the Hunter says... Are you coming into my wild wood? I mean... That's right. None of the characters in this have ever seen that public information film with Duncan Preston in it. Come on, jump in. Clearly not. Because then he says, be a stag in the wildwood with me. I mean, it's just it's, it's like, just uh, so no thanks, creepy. Mate. I'm sorry, I've already eaten. Um, <laughs> they both turn into stags and they go running through the woods. But there's a wolf hiding in the tree, so they turn into ducks. And then they get pursued by a hawk. And then they dive into the water and become fish. And my note is genuinely, I don't think I'm drunk enough for this. This goes on for ages as well. Like, it's a really long sequence. Even in the show, like, when Kay comes back into the real world, he says, I wonder how long that took. Yeah. <laughs> About ten minutes, mate. <laughs> it took most of the episode and I don't know what happened. It doesn't further the plot at all. It's just an example of what can go on in the Box of Delight. So you just sort of like, yeah, let's get on with the story. Yeah. The animation is by Ian Eames, who was a Pink Floyd's animator. So before Gerald Scarf, who did The Wall, their animations before that was were by Ian Eames. Uh, they're nice animations. They just go on a bit. And I like Roger Lim's music. It's quite like Jean-Michel Jarre, early Jean-Michel Jarre. It's quite nice. That radiophonic workshop electro music. That works really well. And I didn't really understand why, if he's Hearn the Hunter, why does he spend all his time as prey animals running away from predators? He's supposed to be the predator. He's Hearn the Hunter. Why isn't he the wolf and the bird of prey and the pike? I can't wait till it's my week. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I have been baffled. I have been baffled for like four episodes now by the time this comes out. Even though he recently got called for his dinner, after the whole animated bit ends and he comes out of the box of delights, he immediately goes tiny, goes down a hole, meets an ice skating mouse, who he apparently knows. Uh, 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 who takes him to the pub in order to spy on Abner Brown and the baddies. I wrote down, this has all the narrative coherence of a prog rock album. It really does. It was feeling like that, though, wasn't it? I think that animation, the, the Pink Floyd animation, lent yeah. it that sort of feeling as well. That it, is, it feels like each of these apparently unrelated, standalone, bonkers things could be a track on a prog, prog rock album, Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple or something. It did re remind me a bit of um, the animation, although that is more strange and surreal, the animation for uh, Love Is All by Roger Glover. <laughs>
if programmes were running short to fill time, they would occasionally just plop it on. This mid-70s, 60s-style psychedelic track. And it, it was quite... That was quite creepy. And they meet uh, some pirate rats, one of whom is played by Nick Berry off of Heartbeat. Every loser wins. Sorry. The pirate mice were great. I think they should have just stayed with... I, I would have just stayed with the pirate mice and hung out. Like, because I am I am that easily distractible. Oh, great pirates! But but no, uh, because because the mouse is scared. Kate then holds hands with him and he turns the box to the left, so they go swift and they fly exactly to the right place where they can eavesdrop on Abner and the baddies through a crack in the skirting board. Which leads us to episode three called In Darkest Cellars Underneath, in which we join the mouse and Kay eavesdropping on Abner Brown and the villains. And Abner Brown is outraged at Kay's behaviour. Not only has he been talking to the police, but get this, he's been talking on telephones. Kids in the phones these days. God, they're never off the phones. Speaking to the police, talking on telephones. Rude. Sylvia Daisy Pouncer is played by Patricia Quinn from the Rocky Horror Show. Of course she is. Abner Brown is wearing a green dressing gown and a dog collar, so there's there's a lot of creepy clerics in this. There is so much creepy clergy imagery in this. I think your man who wrote it, whose name has escaped me again. John uh, Macefield. We've got the best cars here. Yeah, I think he clearly had a thing against clergy because all of the references are just super creepy. Yeah, I don't know what his beliefs were. I mean, obviously he's he's of a certain generation. I think he was born in the 1870s. But yeah, with the, like the, the very pagan Hearn the Hunter is a good guy and then you get these three pretend clergymen who are villains. I mean, there is a, the, there's a nice bishop or vicar later on. So it may just be, you know, a bit of boy's own adventuring that you get criminals disguised as I think that's sort of quite a boy's own adventure trope the petty criminals are disguised as trustworthy characters yeah but then I was reminded of um Dubliners by James Joyce there's a particular story in that involving a priest it's quite controversial Robert Stevens is is playing Abner Brown absolutely straight he's quite a threatening sinister villain he's so sinister but Patricia Quinn's camping it up quite a lot. Oh, she is. She's having a lovely time. And they're they're clearly ran- romantically involved, and they refer to each other as precious stones all the time. So she says, "My sapphire, my ruby." Yes. Yes, my diamond, my opal. So it's quite um, it's quite Adam's family. Yeah, she called. No, I, Adam's family was far more romantic than that. She calls him my graven image. That's a term of endearment for you, isn't it? Crikey. It isn't it? My graven Ooh, image. My graven image. <laughs> All right, petal. Oh, do me, oh, duck. <laughs> yes, I think she she is not much less camp here than she would have been in Rocky Horror Show, I think. I think it's a similar level of performance, but it's, it's a lot of fun. May a weak woman make a suggestion, my star-bright Abner. Is it not more likely that he handed it to the bishop? There he was, you see, really in luck, amongst the most respectable 
single company in the county. It is only too likely, my empress, and if he gave it to the bishop, it'll be in the cathedral vaults by now, and those vaults Guy Fawkes and all his gunpowder couldn't get through. Yes! That's where the box is now! My celestial one, it's almost Christmas. The whole cathedral staff will be working overtime preparing for the thousandth anniversary. The bishop won't have given a thought to the vaults. He's thrown the box into a drawer amongst his collars and his handkerchiefs. Just you see if he hasn't. My precious pearl, my blue and yellow sapphire, I should only like to see if he hasn't. All those fools who let it slip through their fingers. I tell you, Sylvia, I'm tempted to get rid of Charles and his infernal ha-ha what? Oh, but my emerald, my ruby, he's one of our most precious workers. And at this point, we discover that Mariah, the little girl who is popular or unpopular, depending on your point of view, she is essentially being kidnapped by the villains. I think she probably villainapped the villains. <laughs> she doesn't know the villains. She thinks they are clergy and she thinks she's gone there to see some stained glass, which again is quite creepy. They have actually kidnapped her. They have. Uh, she's played by jo- Joanna Dukes, who I think a lot of people will know her as Tiddler in Press Gang. I don't. Press I've gang. never seen it in my life, but that seems uh, to be her most prominent Press role. Gang is one that we are going to come to. I used to love Press Gang. Huge fan. Never saw it in my life, officer. Well, you soon will. Jolly good. So there's lots of, yeah, yet more Stranger Danger. She's been kidnapped by these villains who, and let me point out at this stage, these villains have every intention of killing Kay if they have to. They're not nice villains. But how much do Kay and his friends care that Mariah has been kidnapped by villains? They don't care a single jot. No, they don't. They don't. She's awful. They can't stand her. So they go to the police again and they talk to the bucolic police inspector for a second time and they say that this respected clergyman isn't a a respected clergyman at all he is actually called Abner Brown and the inspector I think it's the inspector that says Abner that's a foreign name isn't it no no wait it's not it's not the inspector it's Mrs Calamine who runs the Prince Rupert Arms yes Mrs Calamine Lotion Mrs Calamine Lotion says Abner, that's a foreign name, isn't it? And I thought, oh yeah, here we go, dastardly foreigners. You can't trust him, he's got a foreign name. No, he's, he's, he's not a foreigner, he's a respectable man. Oh, right, okay, fine. Uh, so yeah, no foreigners at the Prince Rupert Arms. It's a 1930s boy's own adventure with psychedelic trappings, let's face it. So clearly anyone with a foreign name or any kind of foreign inklings is not to be trusted. They are a dastardly foreigner. Dastardly foreigners, your favourite trope. So I, I did a little internal groan when Mrs. Calamine Lotion said, Abner, that's a foreign name, isn't it, Master K? I could genuinely, genuinely hear your eyes rolling when that happened. So then after Mrs. Calamine Lotion has been racist, they, then they go off to the inspector, who that's right. doesn't believe them either because the Reverend Bodden, Boddledale, as is Abner's pseudonym, They've sl- they've sung at the Glee Club together, you know. Oh. They've sung together, so by that's, the rules of it. musical, they are pals now. My note is the grown-ups in this show are very trusting and gormless. <laughs> They're right, gormless, Benji, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. They really are. He then suggests that Kay has a posset 
and he'll feel like a new man. Oh, the whole posset thing. And not only does he suggest that he has a posset, which is a really horrible name for anything, because it sounds like suppository, but then he goes all Gary Rhodes and explains to Kay how to make one. He gives him, like, a full recipe and method. Because we've got to stretch this out to six episodes somehow. That's right, that's right. So, of course, it's time for Ready, Steady, Cook. (laughs) I'm there looking at me watch. Well, he's going into great lengths about how to make a posset. You get that nice guardian of yours to see that you take a strong posset every night. A strong what? Uh, of course, you young folks in this generation, you don't know what a posset is. A posset is a jorum of hot milk. And in that hot milk, you put some egg. And you put a spoon for a treacle. And a grating and nutmeg. And then you stirs them well up. And then you gets into bed and you takes it down hot. Peter's little sister has been kidnapped by murderers, so we should probably shoot off. But instead of investigating further, what they do is they go to a Christmas party and it looks like a lovely... They've they got a, an actual real cleric there this time all in, in his purple. I think he's the local bishop. They have crepe paper crackers, which just made me really nostalgic. It's very, very Christmassy. I had a big wash of nostalgia from the crepe paper crackers. I thought, we had those at school. You don't, you don't really get crepe paper. Because I think they're the ones you made yourself. We, primary school, certainly when I went to primary school, was were utterly obsessed with crepe paper. Crepe paper and sugar paper. That's right. The two worst types of paper. In this scene, the bishop kind of turns into a bit of an amateur choreographer. <laughs> He's got aspirations of Pan's people. Who doesn't? Um, And he gets them to get into two circles and do that side-skipping thing. That is the move of childhood, side-skipping. Isn't it? Holding onto two random hands. I don't think I've side-skipped since I was, like, ten. I don't think I've side-skipped since since around the time this was broadcast. Uh, Potentially. I mean, obviously, when this was broadcast, I couldn't even walk. So the the kids had to get into two circles, like a little circle and then a big circle. And then the little circle of kids had to side scare the left. Um, (laughs) And the big circle of kids had to go in the opposite direction. And it it all looked wonderful, or it would have all looked wonderful if they'd have filmed it from the right angle. But the angle that they filmed (laughs) it from, it just looked like some kind of random malay of children jumping. (laughs) (laughs) They couldn't quite afford the overhead camera to make it look like a full Busby Berkeley production. Yeah, no, they couldn't. <laughs> Towards the end of the party, uh, they say to each other, uh, they're having a lovely time at this party. They are. There's presents, there's all sorts. They're all a bit tipsy on eggnog. They are. Uh, and then Peter and Kay say to each other, i completely forgotten. Mariah isn't here. And I wrote, no, she's just busy getting murdered by villains. So no need to worry. And later on that night, that evening, after the party is all dispersed, mm. they're talking to their housekeeper. The housekeeper says, still no sign of her. And they're like, oh, well, I guess we should go to bed then. She'll probably, she'll probably turn up tomorrow. I think that one of the girls says she's, she's perfectly capable of looking after herself. This girl, I have to say, she's about eight, seven or eight, maybe, Mariah. Oh, there you are. You didn't get wet. That's a mercy. Ellen. Give us some good news. Tell us Miss Mara's come home. I'm sorry, Master Kay. There's no sign of her. 
Oh, and the Rupert's arm sent a car to the station, but your guardian wasn't on the train. Hasn't she telephoned? No, she hasn't. So I rang her brother's number in London, and they said she'd left to catch the train, so they didn't know where she could be. The trains get all upset at Christmas time, and in weather like this. Yes, yes, with all the snow. Maybe the train couldn't get through. And she had to come by car. And she'll be here any minute. I do wish Mariah would turn up. Mariah's quite capable of taking care of herself. Come on, Susan. Time for bed. It's not my place, Master Kay, but do you think you should telephone the inspector? What? The bloodhound of the law? Tomorrow morning, perhaps, if they're still not back. It's just odd. No one's fretting. It's like there's a blue jam sketch. Nobody, nobody cares about Mariah. Mariah, Mariah can just feck off. <laughs> oh dear. That's they what all they go all to bed. Say. They tuck him into bed. They have a good night's sleep. No one at all is worried whether she might be in danger. Nope. Whether she might be dead. Nope. Uh, their mum has disappeared. As uh, their uh, governess, rather. No, their their guardian, Mrs. Carolina Louisa, has disappeared. So she's supposed to be on the train. She left to get the train, but the train she was supposed to be on has turned up and she's not there either. They're a bit more worried about her than they are about the missing little girl who's gone off with murderers. But anyway, they all go to bed and they're all tucked up cosy and it's all lovely and Christmassy. And Kay says to Ellen, uh, do you know how to make a posset? And she says, of course I do. And he says, well, I wish you would. And so Ellen makes Kay a, a posset. He's a bit beastly, actually, isn't he, Kay? He he's he's, a, he's a such a spoiled brat. But she comes in with this, and, and there's like the, the soundtrack, like the music around it. It's like very ceremonial. Yes, and Peter does a little bow. So it's like she presents this posset thing. Yeah, so it's this the whole comic scene with this this mock ceremonial music and then Peter does a mock ceremonial bow as she comes in the door and she presents it to Kay. And the little sister's still missing and she's still been abducted by murderers and I've, I've written, Worry, damn it! What are you doing? <laughs> Worry! Shake, yeah? Worry, will ya? Exactly! <laughs> What's going on? Why is no one bothered? I don't understand. <laughs> Why are they doing a whole comedy posset thing? <laughs> She's gone off with the creepy men from the train. Duh. Nobody's worrying, and they should be. My next note is blooming Romans now. So there's a, yeah. a, a small garrison of Romans turn up. With very skinny legs. <laughs> Little white shivery legs in the snow. And then there's a creepy old lady in white who turns into a creepy young lady in white, uh, which is like the shining in reverse. And then she flashes her ring at Kay, and Kay runs towards her. And when he gets right up to her, she turns into Abner. Unsurprisingly, Kay wakes up in fright. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, because n- nothing in this is surprising anymore. Peter's not impressed that Kay has woken up in a fright. He says, have you been having a nightmare because you've been snoring like a pig? I love how Peter just doesn't <laughs> care about anything that's happening. <laughs> yeah, so they wake up the following morning. There's still no sign of Cal- Cal- Lam- no, the- Caroline Louisa, the, the Guardian. There's or Mariah. St- still no sign of Mariah, the kidnapped eight-year-old but they're having a nice breakfast and they're like oh we're, we're, we're slightly worried about caroline louisa she's still not we've still not heard from her but luckily the housekeeper brings in a, te- a telegram clearly a fake telegram yes from Car- caroline louisa who says don't worry i'm fine 
fight and Kay says, that's weird, she normally says, love from Caroline Louisa. But she didn't. Oh, well, shrug, probably fine. <laughs> It'll be all right. Mariah's still not turned up. But to be fair, she doesn't want a lot for Christmas. <laughs> um, so all the kids get together and they say, well, what should we do? Like, our little sister's missing. The guardian's missing. What should we do? I know, let's go sailing. Let's sail our toy boat in the stream. That'll fix all the things. Peter's made up a mudlark splendiferous. Mm. I'm, I'm picturing them some weeks later just going, didn't we used to have a sister? <laughs> Let's go sailing our boat and they say splendiferous. Splendiferous. Uh, and so they do, they go out, they sail the boat, but then they see the aeroplane and the evil baddies. Foxface Charlie and Chubby Joe. That's it. And Kay wastes no time in getting the Box of Delights out and turning himself and his pals small. They go to about three inches tall, and the other kids who've no, they've not seen the Box of Delights, they've no idea about its magical powers. They don't know what's happening, but they still think it's wonderful. Amazing! Gosh, look at that! Kay, look at your boat! Come on! There's no, like, what's going on? How is this happening? Why are we so small? Kay, what are you doing? What has happened to us? Are we going to stay like this forever? No. Are we going to die? How are we going to eat? Are we going to be able to absorb oxygen properly into our bodies? Is my brain like really tiny now? What does that mean for me? I feel like the opposite of the Incredible Hulk. So they escape, they get on the boat, they sail off. The baddies don't realise that they've turned themselves small because at this stage, I don't think they know that Kay has got the box of delights if they don't seem um, to they think the bishop has got the box of delights yes that's right so they they're probably planning to give the bishop a good old scrobbling oh the bishop won't like that at all they don't like it up em. <laughs> they certainly don't but no they're, they're heading towards i'm not 100 percent sure what the actual term is i feel like it's a weir but it's not a weir i think it's a weir we'll mm, say, I'd weir. say it's a weir yeah they're, they're three inches tall on a toy boat and they're heading towards a weir in the manner of the video for No More Lonely Nights from the same year and that really freaked me out. There's something about 1984 and going over weirs. As a child, if ever I was on a boat, I was always really scared that we might go over a weir because that just seemed to be a thing in 1984, going over weirs. That's it for you. And they, they yelled, hold on tight. And then the credits went up. Yeah, and that's, that that's the first that's half it. box of delights. That's it. We've watched it now. That's all, that's all my brain could cope with. I don't know what happened. Do you know what happened? I don't know what happened, but... Having only seen it, the whole thing on broadcast, I can still remember how it ends. Okay, how does it end? And I'm still angry. Oh, you're not telling no, me. I'm not, I'm, not te- I'm not telling you, but I'm still angry. Oh, just God. Say that much. Anyone who's seen the whole thing will know why I'm still angry 37 years later. They don't kill Patrick Troughton, do they? It's worse than that, but no, I'm not I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't give it away for anyone who hasn't watched it. My mum was angry. You were angry. I was angry. But other than that, until until the ending, it's a very strange and magical thing. It's very magical. I mean, you, you said you liked it. I liked it. <laughs> I, fe- I felt you sort of liked it, but also did your head in. Yeah, yeah that's that's basically my, my opinion. No, I, it's difficult watching things like this when you are watching them for a specific purpose, like, for example, to record a podcast. So if I was watching it as just like a human, I would probably have a lot more patience with it uh, because I would be like well it's fine because in the end I will get the payoff and I will understand why this is happening 
But I didn't have time for that. But I knew we were only going to watch three episodes. So I was like, I hope I have some kind of an idea of what the chuff is going on. But by the end of episode three, I was more confused than I was at the beginning of episode one. I liked it. I just don't I just don't like not knowing what's going on because I don't know what's going on at the best of times. <laughs> so to launch myself into a scenario where I definitely don't know what's going on just really frustrates me. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's an autism thing or what but I'm just like no why don't you explain it why don't you explain where I'm meant to be and what I'm meant to know and it doesn't it's very very trippy it's very trippy everything that actually happened I didn't like I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed watching it and if I'd, if I'd watched all six episodes I probably would have although now you said that the ending made you made you angry maybe maybe it's just a, a good job that you know I have only seen the first three episodes but I I mean, if I'd have seen the whole thing, I probably wouldn't be as confused. I think it probably also holds more weight with people who have affection and nostalgia for the Christmas period, whereas obviously it's not its not a thing you do. No. So it's more like you're looking in through a window at other people's Christmas, whereas those of us who do the winter celebrations, it's very evocative for... 80s Christmas and sitting cosy with a mug of cocoa in front of the telly. The lights off, the Christmas tree lights are on, and you know all the different colours lighting up the corner of the room and the music. You'd watch it in the dark, and it'd be cold outside and cold on the screen, but you'd have the fire on. Yeah, and you're being transported into this strange and magical world. And yeah, I'm sure I had no clue what was going on, but it did feel like something that would untangle itself and resolve. And I, I genuinely can't remember now whether it does before the end. I like seeing things where you genuinely don't know what's going to happen next. It's like, oh yeah, Romans, of course Romans. Because naturally. Here's an ice skating mouse. <laughs> you so much for sharing your box of delights with me adam it's been a joy join us again potentially in the new year now uh when it will be my turn and in your rest <laughs> we all adam's gonna go and edit this and then have a nervous breakdown and then in the new year <laughs> we will come back stronger than ever and it will be my turn and honestly because i have been subjected to so much bonkersness i feel like i'm going to unleash an awful lot of hell on adam for the next two episodes Uh so i'm not even going to give any hint as to what i'm choosing next and it's hurting down my right (laughs) it's been it's been amazing to spend 2021 with all of you and thank you for putting up with us there has been an awful lot that has gone on particularly at Northern Retro Tube HQ. So thank you for keeping with us. Thank you for all the support through all the year. And we love you very much. And if you want to get in touch with us, at any point you're welcome to our Twitter account is at Retro underscore Tube. Our email address is RetroTubePodcast at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from you and we will always get back to you. So that is all I have got to say for the remainder of 2021. I will see you all in 2022. Adam, do you have the last word? Please make it a good one. Well, that was the purple pin. It was the purple pin, gone down.
This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at 10.99. Look for the pink and white cover.